Now, friends, we come to the second chapter of Ephesians, and it actually continues the thought that we had in chapter 1. It opens with the little conjunction, and, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, he's talking about that tremendous power that raised Jesus from the dead. Well, that power is the power that makes us a child of God because we're dead in trespasses and sins, as we shall see. But now we have been made alive, as he's going to say in Christ. Now, that takes power, and it takes the resurrection power. And it was the thing that so many of God's children have wanted to experience. I think Francis Ridley Havergill expresses it in probably as lovely and fine a way as it could be. Oh, let me know the power of the resurrection. Oh, let me show thy risen life in calm and clear reflection. Oh, let me give out of the gifts thou freely gavest. Oh, let me live with life abundantly because thou livest. I'm sure that's a prayer in the hearts of many of God's children today. Now he's going to reveal here something of that tremendous power that God will release today in the life of one who will turn to Jesus Christ. He'll lift him out of spiritual death and the spiritual life. That's tremendous power. God seems to be rather reluctant in letting man have power. And I think you can see why. Just think of the centuries that went by and man knew nothing of atomic power. Then man discovered atomic power, and it changed the world. And what did it do to the world? Make it a wonderful place to live? No, my friend, it made it a frightful place to live because man today, with the power to destroy the world and the power that's in the little atom, man's dangerous today. And I think that we're living like an ostrich with our heads in the sand if we're saying to ourselves, no nation dares to release that power. My friend, there are many men that are in positions of power today. If they thought they could get by with it, they'd turn it loose tomorrow. In fact, I think they'd turn it loose today. And therefore, man's dangerous with the use of physical power. Maybe God's reluctant to release other power for man. But now we see this power exhibited here. And this chapter actually will deal with another theme. The last chapter, the church is the body of Christ in the world today. And that body is the way you express yourself. And the Lord Jesus expresses himself in the world through his church. Now, the theme of this chapter is the church is a temple. And it is the temple that I think corresponds to the temple of the Old Testament, which was in turn preceded by the tabernacle of the wilderness. And I think the comparison is quite self-evident, but the contrast is sharp and striking. Now, the tabernacle and temple, for instance, were made of living trees of acacia wood, and they were hewn into dead boards. But the church now God takes dead material and he makes it into a living temple. The tabernacle and temple were dwelling places for the glory of God. Now, the church is a dwelling place for the person of the Holy Spirit. 
and the tabernacle and temple were for the performance of a ritual and the repetition of a sacrifice for sin. The church is built upon the one sacrifice of Christ in the historical past and a sacrifice which is not repeated. That is what the writer to the Hebrews says, "...nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the age hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." Now, there is no ritual in the church. As a temple, it is functional. The Holy Spirit moves through the living stone. There's no ritual in the church. I disagree with those that seem to think that the church has been given a ritual. We think today that we've had a church service. If we open with the doxology and we have a prayer and sing hymn number 268 in all 16 stanzas, and then we sit down and read the Scripture, and that means you've had a church service. only thing that means is you went through a ritual, and the church has no ritual. Now, wait a minute. Somebody's going to say, then we're not to do that. Well, I don't know how else you can do it. But the point is, just going through the exercise and mouthing words, my friend, has become meaningless to a lot of folk. And these things should have meaning And they are proper, of course, when there is meaning that is expressed there. Now, will you notice the impressive fact of this age that God is not dwelling in a temple made with hands, but he's indwelling individual believers. Let me read Acts 17, 24 and 25. Notice this. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he's Lord of heaven and earth, he dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things. We are told today that, don't you know, Paul says, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you're not your own. Now, I think I ought to emphasize right here this very important thing. And that is, back in the Old Testament, God really didn't dwell in a temple. When Solomon built the temple, you remember that at the dedication, he got up and made this statement. He said, "...the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, and how can this little temple?" And they understood, every instructed Israelite understood God didn't live in a little box like a great many of the liberals have said. I heard a man at Cole Lectures at Vanderbilt University years ago give a lecture, and he said that the Israelites, they had a primitive viewpoint of God, that he could dwell in a little box. And I wish that man didn't have a primitive view of the Bible. If he'd just read it, he'd find out that back in the Old Testament, they didn't believe God could live in a little box. And God never did live in a house down here. That's where he met with the children of Israel. And that house had a ritual. It had a sacrifice. The church has none of that today. Now, will you notice there's another very sharp contrast to the Old Testament temple, and that's the position of the Gentiles. Now, you will recall that they were proselytes, and there was the court of the Gentiles. And if you are ever in Jerusalem, go up to the holy city hotel and see that replica 
it's made into a miniature of how the city of Jerusalem looked in the days of Herod, which are the days of Christ, of Crows. And you'll see at the temple that the Gentiles were way off to the left as you look into the temple. They didn't get very close. And Paul's going to say here in this chapter, ye, that is ye Gentiles, who were sometimes far off, you're made nigh now by the blood of Christ. We've been brought in pretty close. In fact, we're seated in the heavenlies in Christ. And you couldn't improve on that, my friend, by any means. Now, this gives us something of the background of this chapter that we're entering now. And let me say that I've divided this chapter into three major divisions. You have the church as a temple, remember, and you have, first of all, the material for construction, first ten verses. Then verses 11 through 18, the method of construction. And then in verses 19 through 22, the meaning of the construction. And all of this is very important. Now, will you notice there's something about this section here, and I'd like to say this because you'll need this to understand it. And one is this, that all the way from verse 1 through verse 7 here is what is known in Greek as a periodic sentence. That means the one who wrote this wrote an even a little bit better than the Koine Greek of that day. Classical Greek is filled with periodic sentences. And that's the reason it's difficult to read. It has all kinds of genitive absolutes, all kinds of phrases, tenses, and my, it's not easy to read. And Koine Greek here generally is rather easy to read. But here you have a periodic sentence, which reveals that Paul, when he wanted to, he could really put it on the line, and he does here. Now, the authorized version breaks this up into a sentence that ends at verse 3. And that's not only permissible, that is entirely right here because you have a contrasting statement that's made here, joined by a conjunction, and they're perfectly willing to do it. Now, as we've already indicated, the and connects this chapter with the previous chapter. Paul's been talking about the theme of salvation and the mighty power of God. And Paul picks up the theme of the greatness of his power in verse 19 back in chapter 1. And this is the power which quickens dead sinners. You being dead. Now, that speaks of the death all of us have imputed to us in Adam. Paul mentions it in Romans 5:12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. They've all sinned how? In that first man. Adam's sin made me a son of a fallen Adam, and I have the same nature that he has, which is a fallen nature. And I have no capacity or inclination to God. I was dead in trespasses and sin. Now, when I look back upon my conversion... I really think it is a miracle how in the world God could save a little boy brought up in a home. I won't say it was godless. My father had great high moral principles, and he was known as an honest man. But he was not a Christian. In fact, he's antagonistic to the church. He never darkened the door of a church, but he made me go to Sunday school as a boy. And I always argued about it. 
Then my dad died when I was 14, and I found myself adrift in the world. I run all the way to Detroit, Michigan to get away from every authority. And I began to work not for Ford. I turned that job down. They were looking for workers then. I went and got a job with Cadillac. You probably wondered why the Cadillac car is such a good automobile. I'll tell you why I worked for them. Not long, but to make it a good car. And then I got an awful sin. I got with a group of men up there, one man from Hungary. He thought I looked like his son that had died. And he took me on his wing, but he was a sinner. And he led me to places that a 16-year-old boy ought not to be taken. And I got homesick, though. Now I look back, and God made me homesick. <laughs> and I went back home, and if I hadn't, I'd tell you the devil had won the day. I was dead in trespasses and sin. And then a man told me I could have peace with God through Jesus Christ. How wonderful that was. Now, I say that's a miracle. I wasn't looking for God. I was running from him as fast as I could. And being dead in trespasses and sin, that's the picture of us today. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Now, Adam died spiritually the day he disbelieved and disobeyed God, and he ran away from God. He wasn't looking for God. He hid from him. That's the position of the natural man, this idea that man has a little spark of the divine and he's looking for God. That's as false as anything can possibly be. That day Adam died to God and to the things of God. He didn't die physically until 900 years after he ate of the fruit. Now, it just simply meant he had no longer capacity or longing for God. He separated from God. And after all, death is separation. Physical death is separation of the spirit, of the soul from the body. And that's death. We don't see the spirit and soul, but we sure see a dead body. The highest level of living for man was the physical and the mental. And he's passed on to his offspring this same dead nature, dead to God. And only the convicting work of the Holy Spirit can prick the conscience of any man in this world today. And you and I can't do it. Only the Spirit of God can do it. I had the privilege of being pastor of a great church in downtown Los Angeles. I followed men that were great men. The founder of that church was Dr. R.A. Torrey. I wanted to do a creditable job. I wanted to bring glory to God. And I always would remind myself every time I left the radio room to go in on the pulpit platform to preach, I would say, Oh, God. I recognize that today I'm helpless and hopeless. I'm speaking like speaking into a graveyard. Many will be there dead in trespasses and sin. But then I'd say, Oh, God, I'm powerful if the Spirit of God will move there. For only the Spirit of God can speak. The dead man can hear. And thank God, the Spirit of God spoke as he does on this radio. And dead men are able to hear. And the Lord Jesus said when the Spirit of God came, he would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You and I live in a great cemetery in this world. Men are dead. The Irishman made a statement. Someone asked him what a cemetery was. He says, well, a cemetery is a place where the dead live. And that's the place where we live today. Dead men, dead in trespasses and sins. Over this country years ago, there went a famous judge giving a famous lecture on millions now living will never die. 
there followed him a great preacher. And he came into town and gave a lecture. Millions now living are already dead. And you know, he was more accurate than the judge was because millions have already died. (laughs) And the interesting thing is there are millions today, several billion, dead in trespasses and sins. And that's the picture that speaks of us in trespasses and in sins. Trespasses speak of what Adam did, and sins means that you and I missed the mark. What a picture of mankind today. We're in an area where the past, present, and future of the church and of believers are given. You want to know, Christian friend, your past, present, and future. Perhaps you've driven down a highway sometime, gone through maybe a rather poor section, and you see a sign up by a house that says, We tell your past, your present, and your future. And they generally have it figured out that when you go in there, that they tell you how you're going to come into a great fortune. You're going to get a lot of money. You're going to be able to make a lot of money. I always think that's amusing because these people that know so much about the future, they generally live in the poorest section. They are poor as Job's turkey, however poor Job's turkey was. And they actually are not able to make it themselves, and yet a great many people go to them so they will be able to make it. And it's very interesting that even a lot of God's children don't seem to be able to let God give us our past, our present, and our future. Well, we have it all right here in the second chapter. Now you have the material for construction. And I'm going to read now from my book on Ephesians, Exploring Through Ephesians. I would also like to say concerning this book that what I'm giving now is not in our notes and outline. This book goes into detail, and we will send this to those who have part in our radio ministry. Now, friends, we have to make it that way. I was rather amused the other day listening to a friend of mine who has a radio program, and he says all of our material is free. Well, fine. I'm delighted he can afford to send it out. We cannot. But he ended the plea by saying, and we hope when you order the material, you'll enclose an offering. Well, we hope so too, by the way. We live in hope, and he lives in hope. I think that was quite proper for him to say that. Now, will you notice verses 1 and 2 here, and I'm reading from my translation. And somebody says, oh my, not another translation. And I want to say the same thing. I do not recommend my translation at all. I've used it for years here in Southern California, and it's known out here as the Magiacus Ad Absurdum translation. I don't recommend it. Don't recommend my own at all. And I haven't attempted to really translate. What I've attempted to do is just to pull the original words over into the English that you might maybe get a little different viewpoint. I don't recommend it as a translation, but I hope you will follow along and notice this. And you being dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Now, somebody says, wait a minute, you left out half he made alive or quickened. Well, that's not in the original. And you'll notice that in your Bible, it's in italics. And it's put in there to smooth out the translation. And I'm perfectly willing to admit that it belongs 
there or something belongs there to give explanation, and it's all right. But as I said, I'm trying to pull out the original and give you the meaning here without attempting to make a smooth translation. And you, being dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the age, or the spirit of the age, that is, according to secularism, according to the way of the world, according to the principle of this world, that is, the principle of the world, that doesn't mean the physical universe, It means the cosmos, the society, the civilization that we're in, our life pattern, if you please, our lifestyle, the lifestyle of the world today, according to the prince of the power, that is, the authority of the air. And you can translate that by the haze or the smog of the spirit that now worketh, that is, energizes in the sons of disobedience. The devil takes this dead material that we're dead in trespasses and sins, and he energizes it. And that's the reason that these cults are as busy as termites, and with the same result. They're busy. That's the reason false religion, friends, puts us to shame, because Satan is energizing it. Somebody says to me, you know that, they tell me miracles are being performed in this cult. I won't argue that. Maybe they are. I know a lot of this is exaggeration, but who's doing it? That's the thing I want to know. And Satan is able to duplicate a great many of the miracles that are scriptural miracles. After all, wasn't the magicians down in Egypt able to duplicate Moses' miracles at first? There came a day when they couldn't, of course. When you get into the realm of the new birth and you begin to get close to God, then Satan is powerless there. But long as it's to delude and to deceive people and lead them astray, the devil is potent today, and he's potent in these cults and isms of the world. Now, a trespass is the thing Adam did. That's the word used of his sin. That which he did, he stepped over God's bound. And sins means just to miss the mark. We just don't come up to God's standard at all. And that's our condition, by the way, dead in trespasses in sin, and yet energized by Satan. In other words, the unsaved man's walking around this world like a spiritual zombie. He's dead in trespasses and sins. And now we're told here, in times past, he walked according to the course of the world. That is, he walked according to the age or the spirit of the age and of this world. And that means the society that we're in, what we call civilization today, the lifestyle. And according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now worketh or energizes the sons of disobedience. Now, Satan leads these folk around as he led all of us around Now, what does it mean to walk according to the spirit of the age of this world? Well, I recognize that today we hear a great deal about separation. And most of this talk on separation means that you get away from that which is fleshly or carnal and godless. But 
may I say to you that this lost world is characterized by certain mental and spiritual sins that are actually, I think, in God's sight, worse than the physical sins. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight in war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God." Now, there are a great many folk that come to church on Sunday, and they're as pious as a church mouse, and however pious a church mouse is. But, oh my, they talk about being a separated Christian, and believe me, Monday morning they start out in this old rough workaday world just as mean and hard and after the almighty dollar as much as anyone else is. And they want it to consume on their own selves, their own selfishness. Now, I know this is strong medicine, and a great many folk don't like to hear it, but there are a lot of Christians living just like this today. James, who's very practical, mentions this. Now, friends, this is the thing we've been saved from. Now, John put it like this in 1 John 2, 15 and 17, "...love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in it. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever." Now, there are a great many people that today are not living in sin, they say, They say, no, I would not commit these sins, and I wouldn't live and act like certain people do. The question is this. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan asked the question like this. He said, would you like to? (laughs) Is that the reason that you like to see a TV program where it shows them living it up today? Because you know we do these things vicariously. I've always felt that the reason that the story of the prodigal son is so popular the way that some preach it today is, you notice the Lord Jesus never mentioned any of the sins that boy committed when he was in the far country. But I've heard sermons in which you went from one nightclub to another, from one bar room to another, from one brothel to another, and you know the saints really enjoyed that sermon because they sat there and sinned vicariously. Would you like to live there? That's what John's talking about. Love, not the world. Do you really love it? How do you feel about it? I remember the first time, Ms. McGee and I came to California. We were just, you know, fresh out of Texas. In fact, I'd never seen a body of water. I couldn't throw a rock over it before until I came out here. And we were amazed at the ocean, and we saw it from San Diego, all drove up the coast Los Angeles, what a thrill. Then we drove from here up to San Francisco, and they were having that Treasure Island affair. She and I went over. We had a wonderful day, I must admit. And though that was the bright lights on those colored walls, and then there was the soft music, it was beautiful. 
And that night when we left, we got on the ferry. And we went up on top. We, we were country. Well, we wanted to see the whole thing. And we sat there and looked back at that. And into the fog, that treasure island began to fade away. And the music began to die out. And I said to my wife, I said, I've had one of the most pleasant days today I ever had. I sure have enjoyed it. But I said, if right now, Treasure Island disappeared, and this bay went in under, and that was it. I wouldn't shed a tear, because I don't love anything that's over there. And then I added this. I hope that I can have that kind of an attitude to the world today. A great many folk that talk today about the rapture of the church, and it's a wonderful thing to talk about, but really, I have a feeling some of them are really going to weep when they leave this world because they're so wrapped up in it. They're wrapped up in a job, wrapped up in a business, wrapped up in a home, wrapped up in some club, wrapped up in a worldly church. And, oh, they won't want to go because of the fact all of that's going to be changed. Well, this is strong medicine. Maybe it's a little too strong for you today. Now, I'm showing that the other apostles talked along this line. Simon Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15, "...having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Boser, who loved the wages of unrighteousness." Now, this is a picture of the lost world. Do you somehow or another fit into this, child of God? Well, maybe this is enough of this. Now, according to the prince of the authority of the haze of the spirit that now energizes in the sons of disobedience, you can't serve God and mammon. You've got to choose, Christian friend, who you're going to serve. And if you're serving God, it doesn't mean that you just don't go to picture shows and you don't use makeup and you don't... And don't misunderstand, I don't agree with that type of separation, but that's what I hear today, and that you don't do this and that and you don't associate with certain men that associate with liberals. That's not separation. That's absurd to talk like that. And then yourself, to have eyes so filled with bitterness and hatred and selfishness my friend, those are the gross sins, by the way. Oh, I better move on because I'll lose my audience. Verse 3 says, "...among whom also we all had our conversation." Now, do you notice that Paul now makes it a we? He includes himself. First person plural pronoun that he adopts now. He puts himself right with this crowd. And you and I need to do so also among whom also we all had our conversation, that is, our activities, our lifestyle, if you please, in times past, in the desires of the flesh, that is, of the old nature, doing the desires of the flesh and of the thoughts, and that's of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even as others. Now, there are Christians today that just live for the carnal nature. And that's the way the man of the world is living today, prompted and motivated by a godless philosophy and controlled by satanic principles. As a man, he's supposed to be an outstanding Christian businessman. I visited him once. 
He showed me his home, a lovely home. He told me about his children. He told me about his business. told me about the honors that had been conferred upon him. He never once referred to his relationship to Jesus Christ. May I say to you, there's something wrong with that kind of living, to live like that, to have a lifestyle that includes everything of the world but leaves Jesus Christ out of it. And this is the crowd that Paul says, "...for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness." This is the past. Now, will you notice what's happened? But God. Oh, this little conjunction, but is so important. But God, being rich in mercy. And God's rich in mercy. And he had mercy on me. I know he's had mercy on you on account of his great love with which he loved us. Now, love didn't enable him to save us. But love provided a Savior so he could forgive us. And he's rich in mercy today. Being even dead in trespasses, he quickened us. That is, he made us alive together with Christ. And now he says, by grace have you been saved. And he's raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus in order that he might show forth in the ages which are coming the exceeding riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. Now, but God, and that denotes the radical contrast that has gone before in the first three verses. Those first three verses, they're as black and hopeless as anything can be. Man is a complete failure. He's incapable of saving himself. God comes on this scene of death with mercy. He does not have too little too late. He has a surplus. For an infinite God is rich in infinite mercy. He has what man needs, and he has what you need. The only requirement is that man believe him. And he does this by his grace. A poor woman from the slums of London was taken down with a group of people for a holiday at the ocean. She'd never seen it before. And when she saw it, she burst into tears. And there were those around who thought it was strange that we'd given this lovely holiday and then for her to burst into tears. And she was asked, says, why in the world are you crying? And she pointed to the ocean. She says, this is the only thing that I've ever seen, that there was enough of it. <laughs> oh, my friend, there's enough of the mercy of God. He's got oceans of mercy because God does what? He saves us by His grace. Now, let me illustrate this. What does it mean to be saved by the grace of God? We were dead in trespasses and sin, incapable of saving ourselves. Now, God comes on the scene, and by grace, He reaches down. He finds nothing in us. He finds it in Himself. You see, when God came down to deliver Israel, it wasn't because they were lovely and beautiful and serving Him. They were not. They were stiff-necked people, he said. They were idolaters. They were worshiping a golden calf out there in the wilderness. He said, I've heard their cry. Now, why did that appeal to him? Because he loved them. He loves you and he loves me today. He loves us. But he doesn't save us by love. He saves us by grace. Somebody says, how does he do that? 
Well, let me illustrate that. I have had for years, when I'm in Southern California, a Bible class in Orange County and a Bible class down in San Diego County. And several years ago, a group from Campus Crusade worked on the beaches down there in San Diego County and led quite a few of those young people to Christ. Well, now, some of them belong to the hippie group. But I want to say this, that I found out a lot of those are genuine. And I've come to the place myself that I don't judge a man by his dress. And we're told never to judge a book by its cover. You're not to judge a man by his dress. So these young people, the leader, I was told, put them on our program to listen to our radio program. They also used our tapes, used our books, and I didn't know this. When I went down there, the first class, sitting on the first two rows were a bunch of these young people. My, what a crowd of them. And I want to tell you, there's some of them were dressed in a very unusual manner. And they had the long hair and all that sort of thing that associated with this group. But very frankly, they shocked me at first. But I found out they had their Bibles, notebooks, and they had some spiritual life, which, by the way, you don't always find in our churches today. And here these young people were showing real life. Now, a young fellow came up to me afterward, and he said to me, that wasn't the first time, about the third or fourth time, this young fellow who had been attending came up to me, had written all over him, and he had on a funny hat, on it he had written, love, 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 love. He had a funny coat on, on it written, love, love, love. Had funny trousers, by the way, and he had written on a love, shoes, had written on a love. He had written all over him, and... I said to him, I said, why in the world do you have love written all over you? Oh, he says, man, God is love. Well, I said, I agree with you. Nothing could be truer than that. God is love. Then he added this, and he says, God saves us by his love. Oh, I said, I don't agree with that. God doesn't save us by his love. I said, give me the verse. Well, he scratched his head and thought a minute or two. He says, well, maybe I can't think of it right now. Well, I said, when you do, let me know, because I've never been able to find it. And so he said then, well, if God doesn't save us by love, how does he save us? Well, very frankly, I said, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I said, the Bible says, by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I said, God saves us by grace. Well, the boy won't know. What's the difference? Well, I said, the difference is just simply this. I said, God does love you. I said, let's don't lose sight of that. God loves us. But I said, God, just on the basis of love, he can't open the back door of heaven and slip us in under cover of darkness. And he can't let down the bars of heaven in front and bring us in the front door. Because I said, now, not only God is love, first of all, God is light. He's the moral ruler of this universe. And he's righteous. He's holy. And he's good. Now, I said all of that adds up to one thing. God can't do things that are wrong. That is wrong according to his standard. Now, I said that God couldn't save us by love. I said love had him strapped. He can love without being able to save. And I said the verse I thought you were going to give me was John three sixteen. God so loved the world. And I said, let's look at it. God so loved the world that he saved the world? No, I said, that's exactly what it doesn't say. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 
You see, God couldn't save the world by love because he goes on to say, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, what? Might not perish. Well, I said, you and I are going to perish. We're lost sinners. And God still loves us. But the love of God just can't bring us into heaven. God had to provide a salvation, and he paid the penalty for our sin. Now I said, a God of love can reach out his hands to a lost world and said, Now, if you'll believe in my son, because he died for you and will come to me on that basis, I can save you. Now, I said, God doesn't save us by love. God saves us by grace today. And I said, frankly, that's more wonderful because I said that today I could get out of favor or could, when I was a boy, with my parents because of sin, because something I did wrong. But I said, I can never get out of favor with God. I can lose my fellowship. And if I sin, that breaks fellowship. The Spirit of God is grieved. But I said, if I'll come back to him, if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive my sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But even if we walk in darkness and we say we have fellowship with him, we're lying because we're not having fellowship. But if we walk in the light, this he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And what happens? If I walk in the light of the world of God and I see I've come short, well, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, just keeps on cleansing me from all sin. Why? Because God does it by grace. And what about grace? Well, he's rich in mercy and grace. He extends mercy to you today. And God has his arms outstretched to a lost world and says, if you come my way, and by the way, this is his universe. He's doing it his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. He does. This is his. He makes the rule. And you're going to have to come his way. He loves you. Oh, you can't keep him from loving you. Not what you can do. You can't keep the sun from shining, but you can get out of the sunshine. And by sin today, by being out of the will of God, turning your back on him, you won't experience the love of God. But if you will come to him through Christ, he'll save you. God is rich in mercy. Now, that's the present state of the believer. How is that? Why, he not only lifted us from a graveyard, a spiritual graveyard, but he's made us alive sitting in Christ today, yonder in the heavenlies. He's the head of the church, remember? We saw that in the first chapter. And what's he going to do? Why, he's going to show forth in the ages which are coming the exceeding, the overflowing riches of his grace and kindness toward us. I'm going to be on exhibit someday. And angels are going to go by and say, See that fellow McGee? He wasn't worth saving. He was lost. But look at him today. He's here in heaven. And why is he here? Because of the riches of the grace of God. And God was kind to him. God saved him. And God brought him here. And that's going to be for the praise of God throughout the eternal ages. And I'm not going to get any credit at all. Did you know that? Oh, not one bit of credit. But you want to know something? I'm going to be there. And that's good enough for me. And I'm going to join that angelic host. And I'm going to sing praises to God. Why? Because he saved me. I'll be for the demonstration of that. Friends, you can't have it any better than this. This is the most wonderful thing that I know of. 
that we have. And here we're told in a very wonderful way that we've been quickened together with Christ. That's a possession, impartation of divine life. Raised and seated with Christ in the heavenlies, that's a position that we're given today. And you just can't add anything. And grace is the way. Grace is mentioned twice here. And you can't have it, friends, any more wonderful than this. Oh, today to praise Him for His infinite, wonderful grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wreck. Like me. Now will you notice, verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, this is the great verse that consummates this section in which he's given to us, actually, the past, the present, and the future of the believer. We were dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of the world. And now God, by His infinite, marvelous, wonderful grace, has reached down and saved us. And then what a future we have. We'll be on display revealing the grace of God and not revealing what nice, sweet little Sunday school folk we are, but rather we'll be on exhibit for the glory of God. And I won't mind it because I never felt I'm going to get to heaven anyway on my own works and my own merit. And therefore, I'll be delighted to exhibit the wonderful grace of God. And it'll be quite evident that that's the way that he saved me. Now, for by the grace ye have been saved. And do you notice I've changed that a little here. And it's the grace. And what he's referring to is what he talked about up there, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ. This is something special. It is the grace. And it is by the grace that we have been saved. Now, don't come along and say, I hope to be saved. Can you say this day? Can you say, I am saved? And somebody says, oh, I wouldn't dare make a statement like that because I don't know what the future holds. My friend, that's not the basis of your salvation. Your salvation rests upon grace. God has saved you by grace. And you can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And if you're God's child, you may wander far from him but he always makes a way back for you. And by the grace of God, you have been saved. And you have today a finished salvation. And you can say on the basis of what Christ has done for me and the fact the Holy Spirit has inclined me toward Christ and I have trusted him on the basis of the word of God, I have been saved. And it's not a hope-so salvation or I'll try salvation, but a salvation that can say, By the grace ye have been saved, and by means of faith, and that not of yourselves. God is the gift, not of works, in order that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, poema, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we should walk in them. Now, I want to read to you a statement here about the grace of God and the love of God. And the grace of God, as has been defined theologically, is unmerited favor. I like to speak of it as love in action. And I want you to hear the statement of a teacher of mine, a man who taught me theology, Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer. And here is the statement. Will you listen to it? It's so important. A sharp distinction is properly drawn between the compassionate love of God for sinners and His grace which is now offered to them in Jesus Christ. Divine love and divine grace are not one and the same. God might love sinners with an unutterable compassion, and yet because of the demands of outrage, divine justice, and holiness, be unable to rescue them from a righteous doom. However, as has been before stated, if love should graciously provide for the sinner all that outrage, justice, and holiness could ever demand, the love of God would then be free to act without restraint in behalf of those for whom the perfect substitutionary sacrifice was made. This is Christ's achievement on the cross. On the other hand, Divine grace and salvation is the unrestrained compassion of God acting toward the sinner on the basis of that freedom already secured through the righteous judgment against sin, secured by Christ in his sacrificial death. Divine love might desire to save, yet be unable righteously to do so. But divine grace is free to act since Christ has died. It is to be observed, then, that the eternal purpose of God is not the manifestation of his love alone, though his love and his mercy are like his grace mentioned in this context and expressed in Christ's death, but it is rather the manifestation of his grace. That's the end of the quotation. Now, out of God's infinite treasure chest, he lavishes his grace upon sinners without restraint or hindrance. Now, faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. It's the only element that the sinner brings to the great transaction of faith. But we are told it's the gift of God. And now, somebody's going to say to me, well, then, preacher, since it's the gift of God and God hadn't given it to me, then I guess I'm not to blame. Oh, my friend, may I say to you, God's made that very clear. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. My friend, if you want to trust Christ, you'll have to listen to the Word of God. And God will give faith to all therefore who will give heed to the message of the gospel. And that was the thing that we noted when we were over in 2 Corinthians. You remember at that time, we called attention that to, frankly, a very wonderful statement. And I think I'll turn to it. Verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 3. 
and not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. In other words, the veil is put on Moses' face not because he was blinding everybody like a headlight, but the glory was fading away because that belonged to the Mosaic system, that belonged to the law. Now he says, "...their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ." Now you don't need a veil, because today he is the unveiled Christ, and the gospel is declared. But we are told, but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. What is it here? Well, when the heart shall turn to the Lord. Any time that you are ready to turn to Christ, you can turn to Christ. And somebody says, well, I'm not given the gift of faith. That's not your problem. Your problem is that you don't want to give up your sin that the Bible condemns. Any time that you're sick of your sin, any time you want to turn from yourself, from the things of the world, from religion, from everything, and turn to Christ, then you'll be given faith. You can trust Him. I get a little weary of these people today that say they have intellectual problems. You've got moral problems. And I mean real moral problems if you just face up to it. You see, that's the real problem in the hearts of a great many folks. And a great many saints today don't enjoy their salvation. Why, you know, even psychology over in Duke University, they made a study over that. And the second reason that folk today are emotionally disturbed and mentally unstable is because instead of living in the present and the future, they live in the past, and it's a preoccupation with past mistakes and failures, and looking to themselves all the time instead of looking away to Christ and trusting Him. Now, faith is the instrumental cause of salvation. Now, Spurgeon says, It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it's Christ. It's not thy hope in Christ that saves thee, it's Christ. It's not even thy faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merit. That's where the power is, and that's where the salvation is. Now, Paul's not talking about faith when he says, and that not a you. Well, God's is the gift. He's talking rather about salvation, and salvation is a gift that eliminates boasting. Everything about it is God, <laughs> and we're nothing. If you will take the position of a zero and then let him be the one to write in the amount, then, my friend, that's salvation. Now, we are told here that the church is God's workmanship. And this is a very wonderful verse. For we are his workmanship. And the Greek word is poema. We get our word poem from that. The church is his poem. And friends, that church that we're talking about here is not really the local churches that we saw in the epistle to the Galatians, but what we see here is that 
body of believers from the day of Pentecost to the Perusia, the real believers, and I'm confident they're in local churches, and that group of believers, they're his workmanship, and they're created in Christ Jesus. That is, they're a new creation, and they're in Christ Jesus. But why? For good works. And when we get to the last part of this epistle, he's going to tell us we're to walk down here in a way that's creditable and acceptable to God. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in order that we should walk in them. God intends for us, though we are seated in the heavenlies, we are to walk down here in a way to bring glory to his name. And he'll be coming to that in the last three chapters of this epistle. Now we come to the method of the construction of the church as a temple of God. He says, Wherefore, remember that once ye, the nations, that is, Gentiles in the flesh. So actually, the church in Ephesus was made up largely of Gentiles. There was just a colony of Jews that were in Ephesus. Wherefore, remember that once ye, the nations, you were Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, apart from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. I brought a sermon one time. I don't think it was a very good sermon on what it means to be lost. And this is a passage of Scripture that I use. What does it mean to be lost? You will recall that here we are told certain things. That is, that we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We have no right to go back in the Old Testament and take promises God made to Israel and appropriate them for ourselves. He didn't make them to us at all. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And we were strangers from the covenants of the promise. Now, God made certain promises to the nation Israel, and they belonged to him. Now, he's promised them that land. Now, they're going to get it someday, but they'll get it on his terms, not their terms. And we were strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, when I was over that, I didn't attempt to homestead or stake out a claim on this basis that God had promised it in the Old Testament. I understood he was talking to Israel and not to me. And he told me, however that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. Now, that was the position of us as lost people. We were strangers from the covenants of promise. And then, friends, look at this, having no hope. You look at the religions of the world. They have no hope. It's pretty hazy about this matter of after death. There's no resurrection, and there's no hope. And the cults offer no hope at all. They put up a hurdle that no honest human being could get over, having no hope and without God in the world. That was the position of Gentiles. And when Paul wrote this, my ancestors 
On one side, we're walking through the jungles and the forests of Germany as heathen and pagan as they come. And the other families over at Scotland, and they were even worse conditions, so I'm told. They were pagan and heathen. That was our condition without God in the world and having no hope. That's what it means today, friend, to be lost. And that is the condition of multitudes of people around us today. They have no hope. They're without God in the world. I have to be very frank with you. I think if I was in the position of a lot of these today, I'd crawl up on a bar stool and try to drink and forget it all. What else you going to do? You've got no hope. And the only hope you got is here in this world, and so you better squeeze this life like an orange and get all the juice out of it you can, because you've got nothing coming over there. You're without hope and without God in the world, and you're strangers from the covenant of promise. What a position to be in. These are terrible, awful things. Now will you notice something has happened. Verse 13 But now in Christ Jesus, ye who once were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Now the court of the Gentiles there in the tabernacle, they could come, but they were way off. Let me tell you, they were way out actually in right field. And it was a long way to home base from where they were. And therefore, the very wonderful thing is the blood of Christ has brought us in and will bring us to heaven someday. Now, will you notice here? For he is our peace, who made both one and broke down the middle wall of the fence, the enmity, having abolished in his flesh the law of commandments contained in ordinances, in order that he might create the two in himself into one new man, making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity in it, and having come, he preached peace to you who are afar off and to them that are nigh. So that today, friends, when you come to Jesus Christ, you are brought not only into a body, but now you are brought into a place where you stand before God on a par with anybody. I can stand today with you, and you stand today with me on equal footing. And therefore, the point of separation for believers should never be color. It should never be a social status. It should never be on any basis at all, because we've been made one in Christ. And I don't care who you are. If you're a believer in Christ, you and I are going to be together throughout eternity And I don't know why we shouldn't speak to each other every now and then down here, friends. The Lord Jesus Christ, he's our peace. That is, the peace for both Jew and Gentile, for the contrast here is between them. And he broke down the middle wall of the fence, that is, the partition, the enmity that was between the two. And he's made now a new man, put us together in Christ, and made peace, that is, We have peace with God, we should have with each other, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. God's work of reconciliation is already completed. He's ready to receive you if you are ready to come. And therefore, the message that goes out is, be ye reconciled to God. And if you will be, then that brings you into a new body, a body of believers, 
and doesn't make any difference who they are, Jew or Gentile, doesn't make any difference about the color of their skin. They may be white, they may be brown, they may be red, they may be black, but that doesn't make any difference. If they're in Christ, we're made one new man, and we should have peace. Now, you see, the emphasis in this passage is upon the glorious person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only made peace by the cross, but those who trust him are placed in him, and they become a new man now. And the contrast, of course, here, as we've indicated, is between Jew and Gentile. But God had made a difference originally by separating the Jew from the nations. Now, that difference led to spiritual pride, actually, on the part of the Jew. And ultimate, there was hatred between Jew and Gentile. When a Jew and a Gentile are placed in Christ, there's peace. Not only because of the new position, but because something new has come into existence. And Paul identifies this as a new man in Christ. We're something new. So that Paul had said to the Corinthians, "...give none offense, neither to the Jew, the Gentile, nor to the church of God." That church is the new man. Before God, the Gentile is not brought up to the status of the Jew. He's actually brought up higher. And Chrysostom made this statement, and my, this is a wonderful statement. Will you listen to it? He does not mean that he has elevated us to that high dignity of theirs, but he has raised both us and them to one still higher. I will give you an illustration. Let us imagine that there are two statues, one of silver, the other of lead, and then that both shall be melted down and the two shall come out gold. So thus he has made the two one. I think that's a marvelous illustration that we've been brought together in Christ. May I say to you, I do not believe in the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man. To me, that's a damnable heresy. Forgive me for saying it, but that's what it is. I believe the brotherhood of those that are in Christ. Now, a man may have a skin as white as the driven snow. And if he's not a child of God, he's not my brother. I don't care what you say. He's not my brother. But that man may have a skin that's as black as midnight. And if he's a child of God, he's my brother. Now, you can't escape that. We're something new. We're in Christ, a new man. And this is the building, the temple that God is building today. And it might, therefore, be more accurate to say that the Jews have been brought down to the level of the Gentile, as both are in the same state of sin. Because all of us are brothers, actually, as sinners, as sons of Adam, because Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? That is, are we Jews better than the Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they're all under sin. That's the state we're in. Now, the peace referred to is between Jew and Gentile. When the Jew and Gentile come to the cross of sinners, they're made into a new creation, a new man, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Old Testament temple which succeeded the Mosaic tabernacle, was marked by partitions. There were three entrances into the three departments, outer court, holy place, holy of holies. Then there were sections partitioned off for priests, 
for Israel, for women and Gentiles. Now, Christ, by his death, he took out the veil, and he became the way, the truth, and the life, so that you go through Christ and come directly to God. And those who come to him are removed from their little department and are placed in Christ, the new temple, where there are no departments. The cross dissolves the fences, and the gospel is preached to the Gentiles and to Jews. What a picture we have here. Now, verse 18, "...for through him," that is, Christ, "...we both have access in one Spirit to the Father." I wonder if you've noted that this little verse here is a big verse. It's like a little Adam. It has in it the Trinity. Notice it. "...for through him," that is, Christ, "...we both have access in one Spirit," that's the Holy Spirit, "...to the Father," and that's God the Father. You see, Jew and Gentile at the cross are not only on the same footing as sinners, but through Christ they both have equal access to God, which is a glorious privilege for any human being. And that's one of the things Paul says in the fifth of Romans, that are the benefits of justification by faith. We have access to God through Jesus Christ. And that's wonderful. Now, I don't think you can rush in a brazen way into the presence of God. But it's a real privilege to have access through the Lord Jesus Christ into the Father. And I don't care who the humblest believer is, he has as much access as the Pope at Rome, as the President of the World Council of Churches, and as Vernon McGee has. You have as much right. And that's the reason that I asked people on the radio when I had cancer, I said, pray for me. And I still have it, and I still say to folk, remember me in prayer. I've had several folks say, why did you ask everybody to pray? Why didn't you just ask some folk? Because I think every believer has access to God, my friend. I believe in the priesthood of believers, that we all have access to him. This is the marvelous thing about this new building that we're talking about. Now we have the meaning of the construction here, verses 19 through 22, here in this second chapter of Ephesians. I'm reading now, and if you've noted, last time and this time I've been reading directly from my book, my own translation, which I do not recommend. This is the Magicus ad absurdum translation. And all I'm doing is bringing out the literal. Listen, now therefore, you are no more strangers and sojourners, that is, foreigners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and you're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, Paul reminds here the Gentile believers that though they were strangers and they were alienated from God, their present position is infinitely bettered. They are no more strangers and sojourners. They're fellow citizens with the saints. And saints is not a reference here to Old Testament saints. They're fellow citizens with the New Testament saints. They are the members of the body of Christ. And they belong to a household, not as servants, but relatives. That is, we're members of the family of God. We're his dear little children. Listen to John, so lovely, in 1 John 2.12, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. 
we're little children. <laughs> this is a new relationship, a relationship that was foreign to the Old Testament. Even David, the man after God's own heart, he is called my servant David, Second Samuel 7, 8. Moses was called Moses, God's servant, Numbers 12, 7. And now their citizenship is not in Israel and in the earthly Jerusalem, but it's in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven. Whence also we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 3.20. And you see, we are fellow citizens. We belong to heaven now. And the word conversation, you see in the authorized version, is rightly changed to citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, notice this. This is important. It does not mean that the apostles and prophets were the foundation, but they personally laid the foundation because we read that the early church was built on the doctrine upon that which the apostles were teaching. In Acts 2.42, right at the day of Pentecost, it says that group that were brought into the church, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship the breaking of bread and prayers. And much has been written about the identity of the prophets, or the Old Testament prophets here, New Testament prophets. The fact that the prophets are in the same classification as apostles without the article V would seem to designate them, I think, as New Testament prophets. And I think that you will find this confirmed when we get in the third chapter here. Now, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, and that reveals that Christ is the rock on which the church is built. Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And Peter put it like this, Wherefore also it's contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient the stone which the builders disallowed. The same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now the important thing to note here is that Peter says, that the Lord Jesus is that chief cornerstone. He is that rock on which the church is built. And therefore, Peter understood when the Lord Jesus said to him, I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What's he talking about? He's talking about himself. He's the rock on which the church. Is built, And the apostles and prophets put down that foundation, by the way, which is that Christ is the chief cornerstone. He's the rock on which the church is built. He's the foundation. Now, verses 21 and 22. "...in whom every building fitly framed together is growing unto a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being builded together for a habitation that is a permanent temple of God in the Spirit. Now, again, the analogy here is to the temple of the Old Testament. 
And the Old Testament ritual, I think, is obvious here. Yet the contrast is revealed in the analogy. There were, for instance, several buildings in the temple at Jerusalem, and I don't think Paul is referring to the different buildings. He means each individual believer is fitted into the total structure. And that is the way that Peter expressed it, you remember, that we are stones just fit it in, built upon Christ the rock. Now, Paul speaks of the church as a temple which is currently under construction. And that's quite interesting because in Paul's day, Herod's temple, which was the temple at that time, was unfinished. It had already been, in our Lord's day, 40 years in building, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D., and even at that time it was not completed. Now, the church is under construction today. It'll be finished. And it's being built in a most unusual way. We're told here it's growing unto a holy sanctuary. Now, that reveals that it's unfinished. And the structure is being built differently. You don't put one stone on top of another in a cold way. This temple is growing. And God is taking dead material, dead in trespasses and sins, gives it life, born again. And now it's growing into a living temple. As Solomon's temple was built without the sound of the hammer, so the Holy Spirit silently places each dead sinner through regeneration and baptism into the living temple. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. And it's called a holy sanctuary. It's holy because the Holy Spirit indwells it. And by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the saved sinner is placed in the Lord, and the Holy Spirit indwells each believer. We're told that. But ye are not in the flesh, Paul says, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you, Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. That's Romans 8, 9. Now, it's a habitation. That is a permanent temple of God in the Spirit. When believers come together in a building to worship, the Holy Spirit is present. And in that sense, God's in that building. But when each believer leaves the building, it's empty. God's not in any church building today any more than he's in any bar room. Today, God indwells believers, not buildings. Actually, God has never dwelt in any building made with hands. Listen to Solomon, 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I build in. It's a pagan philosophy which places God in a human-made structure. The purpose of the church as a temple is to reveal the presence and glory of God on earth. When believers assemble together in a church, the impression should be made upon the world, even in this age, that God's in his holy temple. The world should feel that God can be found in a church service. But my question is, can he today? And I'm sorry if I seem like I'm criticizing, but my friends... The world is not sure God's meeting with folk today. 
I'm sure that there'd be a great many more there if they were sure God was present. 